Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston Smith. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the headmaster at Bethany Christian School across the street. Um, and it's always a privilege and a joy to be able to share the Word of God and, and to preach. And so I pray that the Lord would get me out of the way and, and communicate um, what He wants to communicate to your heart this morning. When Tom first approached me, he asked me to preach on, on Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 49. And so I'm looking at it, and it's Luke's condensed version of the entire Sermon on the Mount that's laid out in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And I said to Tom, I was like, there's 647 sermons in here. <laughs> Tom's classic response, pick your favorites. <laughs> And so really, when you look at the text, I mean, because it, it bounces around and you're looking at, you know, love your enemies and, and turn the other cheek and, you know, a good tree and a bad tree and houses and foundations. And there's a lot of stuff contained in this passage. But at the end of the day, Jesus is really just getting at one thing. He's really wanting us to realize one thing. And that's this. We have roots that grow really deep. We have roots that grow really deep and into our selfishness and our self-centeredness and our self-serving instincts. And those roots produce bad fruit. And what Jesus is coming to us and wanting us to realize is that if we're leaning on our own strength, if we're leaning on our own instincts, we're going to make a mess of our lives. And we're going to end up empty. But if we're willing to trust by faith in Him and what He can do in us and through us, if we're willing to empty ourselves of those self-serving tendencies and give our lives with open hands completely to Him, man, the fruit you will bear, the joy and peace you will have, All right, let's pray. No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> How many of you in here watch Seinfeld? Ever watch Seinfeld? Well, there's this great episode where George Costanza, because in this sermon, Jesus is giving us something that's entirely counterintuitive. It's, it's revolutionary to the way we see the world. And in this episode of, of Seinfeld, George comes in and he walks into a restaurant and Jerry and Elaine are sitting at, the, at a booth and he comes in, and as usual, the neurotic George walks in, and he's fed up with the world. And so he walks in, and he says, my life is garbage, you know. Every instinct I've ever had has always been wrong. Every decision I've ever made, always wrong. Terrible instincts. And so they go on talking about how all of his instincts are totally wrong. And Elaine says, hey, George, that lady at the bar just looked at you. And George looks over, and he says, Elaine... Beautiful women do not want to be hit on by fat, overweight, unemployed people who live with their parents. And Jerry looks at him and says, well, if every instinct you've ever had is wrong, George says, I'm doing it. And he walks up to this nice lady sitting at the bar and he says, hello, my name is George. I'm fat, bald, unemployed, and I live with my parents. And this lady looks at him and goes, well, hi. <laughs> Hi. 
in a very real sense, that's Seinfeld, but in a very real sense, our instincts are wrong. It's our, it's our fallen condition, it's our, our self-serving nature that leads to every problem we have in our life. Really, truly. It's because we're looking for things to satisfy our heart that are totally self-absorbed and those things grab hold of us and enslave us and we can never get enough so we're never satisfied. We're never at peace. We're never at rest. We're never feeling joy because we've made it all about us and there's nothing in this world that can fill it, fill the, the chasm in our soul. But Jesus is going to show us how you can have all those things, liberty and joy. And he starts in Luke 6, verse 12, by laying down this pattern. And we've talked about this in, in previous sermons, but, but the Gospels are laying down two tracks because they want you to understand that Jesus is being compared to the greatest figure that the Jews exalted in the Old Testament, and that's Moses. And so he says this, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. Notice that. Jesus is about to deliver the greatest sermon in the history of the world on no sleep. Found that interesting. He had sermon jitters. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And so when it tells you that, you're supposed to go, okay, I get it, the pattern is continuing. And what I mean by that is before Moses came, there's this long, agony-filled, where are you longing for a deliverer to come and rescue them from their slavery in Egypt? And so after 400 years, Moses comes on the scene. This track. You know, the prophet Malachi was the last prophet given to Israel, and they have languished for about 400 years. Wondering, where is our deliverer? And when the deliverer comes in Moses, you find this maniacal tyrant, Pharaoh, who wants to kill all of the baby boys, right? And over here, you've got the maniacal tyrant, Herod, who kills all the babies in Bethlehem. And when Moses has his pinnacle of his ministry and he begins as kind of the leader of Israel, it comes when he's crossing through the Red Sea and the people see, man, God is with this guy. And He leads them through what the New Testament calls a baptism through the Red Sea. And Jesus launches His ministry by going into the Jordan and being baptized. Moses gets done going through the Red Sea. And where does He go? He goes out in the wilderness where they're tested with temptations. Gee, what does Jesus do after He's baptized? He goes out into the wilderness where He's tempted for 40 days. Moses fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses goes up on a commandment to get instruction from God. Gee, what does Jesus do over here? Here. Moses picks the twelve tribes and lays out their allotments of land on this mountain. What does Jesus do on this mountain? He selects the twelve. And so, now that we got these tracks running, right? Now you're going, okay, well, well if, if we're tracking, then, then Jesus is about to have His Mount Sinai moment. He's about to have His Mount Sinai moment. He's going to deliver a word from God and if these tracks are following, what should we expect? Well, gee, let me think what happened at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you read the book of Exodus, a far, far different scene than what we find today. 
When God comes to deliver the law, when He comes to deliver His instructions and expectations for His people, it is a horrifying sight. He comes with thunder and lightning and quaking and a thick black cloud descends down on the mountain and these deafening horns and trumpets are blaring and God says, don't even let your people touch the foot of this mountain or they'll die. And what do you know? All the people are saying, get him away from us. Why does God do that? He's about to deliver the law. It's like, you know, I tell my teachers, you know, if you deliver the rules of your classroom and you're like, oh, these are the rules, yippity-dippity, you know, and you give the rules like, all right, well, this person's not very serious. Here God comes in all of His holiness, not to show that He's mean, but to lay down these requirements in front of these people to make them understand, holy cow, I am not sufficient for that God. I am totally inadequate. Did you see His holiness? Did you see how amazing He is? Well, Jesus is going to come to a different mountain. And I want you to notice how this next verse begins. Because it sets the tone for the entire message that He's about to preach. It says, And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And what you're going to find is it says later that he lifts up his eyes at his disciples and he begins to preach. So this section, at least, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has come down. He's descended the mountain. Now he's at the foot of the mountain looking up at his people who are now on the mountain. Think about, if if we're tracking, think about Mount Sinai versus the mountain in Galilee. At Mount Sinai, it's the high and lifted up one. It's the exalted one on the mountain. And the people don't even touch the foot of the mountain. And now Jesus has come to the foot of the mountain and He's put His people on it. Do you see the reversal? Even in the way that He acts, even in the way that He carries Himself, He's changing our understanding, but the message is going to be the same. You are too weak, too inadequate, too sinful, too poor, too broken, too lonely to come to God on your own. He may not come with fire and quakes and trumpets and everything else, but His message is the same. You need a Savior. You can't do it on your own. And it says, He comes down with them and stands on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. So here's the accepted people, the Jews, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, the Gentiles, the outcasts. And he puts them all here. Who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. This picture is a picture I took of, of the Galilee. And this is where we're pretty sure that Jesus delivered a sermon on the mount. In fact, you see the buses on the right-hand side. They're going to a, a really nice, beautiful chapel that Mussolini built, built uh, for the Beatitudes. But you can see how those mountains kind of form this natural amphitheater. And Jesus would have come down... And it makes like the perfect homemade, like God built this amphitheater for the sermon. And it's just a really beautiful place, but it's a far different picture than originally. And what Jesus is going to do, and this is important, is He's going to start speaking. And as He's speaking, He's leaving you to diagnose your own heart. 
Because you fall into one of two camps. He's going to list, you know, blessed are the, and list a bunch of behaviors, and woe to the, and list a bunch of behaviors. And he leaves you to go, which one am I? Where do I fall? And these two radically different sets of values change two things. One, they change how we see ourselves. And then Jesus is going to talk about if you understand yourself in light of Christ and who he is and God and who he is, if you really understand who you are, it will change the way you see yourself and it will change the way you see others. And so Luke 6 verse 20 goes on and it says, he lifted up his eyes, there it is, on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil because you act like a total self-righteous jerk. Oh, no, wait. On account of the Son of Man, what does that mean? If you're acting like Jesus, if you're merciful like Jesus, you're gracious and kind and loving like Jesus, and the world mocks you as naive or stupid or foolish, Jesus says, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And so in these Beatitudes, Matthew has eight of them. Luke shrinks it to the top four here. And he's saying, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew will say, poor in spirit. Blessed are you who hunger. Matthew will say, for, for thirst and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you who weep. And so the question is, are you that guy? Are you that woman? Do you weep? Are you rich? Are you full? Are you scorned? Do you face the world's scorn? Well, then find liberty because what Jesus says is not blessed will you be. He offers promises, but he says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. When you look at this world, let me, let me redefine those words. In the Greek, that word poor just means you recognize that you're dependent on others. That word hungering means that you're empty and you're recognizing that you need something that has not quite come and satisfied you. That word weeping and grieving. Can you look at this world without grieving? Can you engage this world without grieving? In one week, the people who've come in my office make me despise how broken this world is. In a week having to counsel abused kids, marriages that are falling apart, reading testimonies and emails of faithfulness from parents who've just been devastated to find out that their kid has an illness that they will struggle with for the rest of their life. Yeah, we grieve. You know, like Ryan said, there's so many of you in here that are walking through such incredible battles, such hardship, so many things that reduce you to tears and make you want to cry out. 
And the big scheme of things, when we recognize just how inadequate we are in our own strength to be able to handle any of it, are we poor? Are we empty? Do we grieve? When we look at that and say, you know what, but I'm going to cling to the Lord and He is enough, does the world look at you like you're crazy? You know, that mom who had a, her little boy get diagnosed, I read her email to our faculty because it just totally blew me away. Do you know that by the end of reading that email, my entire faculty, just about at least half of them were sobbing, including me who couldn't get through the email very well? It's my Matt Lominick moment of the day. <clears throat> this is a broken world, man. It hurts. There's pain. And Jesus is coming and saying, blessed are you who are poor because I am your treasure. Blessed are you who are hungry because I'm your satisfaction. Blessed are you who grieve because you're not looking at anything. You've recognized that this world can't fill you up. It's not going to satisfy a need. Blessed are you who grieve because you know I'm your comfort. Blessed are you who are cast off, who are reviled, who are shunned because you recognize that I am the only acceptance that ultimately matters. If you believe that, it frees you up from this enslaving temptation to want to define your entire identity by power, the power that money brings or, or the comfort that this world provides when you say, I don't need anything. I've got it all under control. Or this fake joy like this world can't touch you, that you're insulated and powerful enough to stand alone and you're praised and everything else. If you're seeking all that and chasing all that, guess what? You may get taste of it, and then once you get the taste, it's going to leave you going, that's it? That's it? Or it's going to fill your bank account, and then you're going to sit there and go, oh, but i got to protect it. i got to protect it. And all of a sudden, your bank account will start enslaving you and owning you. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you recognize that if you have none of that and only me, you have enough. You have more than enough. But if all you have is this junk, what Paul calls scubulon in the Greek, it means sewage. If that's all you have, yikes. And so he goes on. This David is an example of this where he comes and says, you're never at a better spot in your life than when you recognize your need. That you are a lowly beggar, poor and needy. David says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Here's the man who'd been anointed to be king, who had everything coming to him. He had all the promises, right? And he says, incline your ear. I am a poor and needy beggar. And so what is blessed? Jesus defines it. These different things that he says, I mean, it ultimately comes down to you're blessed when you recognize your weakness. You're blessed when you recognize that you're not comfortable and you can't find that comfort anywhere but Christ. You're blessed when you recognize the brokenness of this life and you're not constantly under the delusion that there's something you can do that will ultimately fix it and satisfy your problems. And you're blessed when the world looks at you like you're weird. And you know who's the perfect role model of all that? 
Christ, who had it all and becomes poor and homeless, who's perfectly satisfied and comes into the world to experience hunger, who is praised by the angels, adored by His Father, and comes into the world to be marginalized and mocked and put outside. And who, even though He knows He's ultimately going to make all things right, is compassionate enough to stop with people like Mary and to just weep with them. Because He grieves what this world's become. He is blessed. And here's the deal. When you recognize who you are in light of Christ, what does it do for you? Consider this. If you identify with the poor and the hungry and the broken and the marginalized really truly, you recognize that the chasm that separates God from you and you from the lowly is so insignificant that you may as well be right in with them. If you, if you identify with them, then how does that change the way you treat the poor, the hungry, the broken, and the marginalized? You're one of them. With a little bit more blessing in this finite life than they have. Now, I was reading this book by Francis Chan called Crazy Love. It's a book that will make you feel bad and then good all at the same time. But it challenges this idea of, man, you've been loved so radically. You've been loved so radically. What are you doing about it? You've been loved and filled with His treasure so that you can then turn and go and love and fill others, right? What are you doing about it? And so I'm reading that book and I'm like, So I get this great idea. We're at the park. I'm playing with my, my little boys, Caleb and Jacob. We're throwing the football at Pompano Park. And this guy, William, comes up. And he'd been drinking. He's homeless. And he and his family, his wife, and a couple other couples, actually, live in one of the pavilions in Pompano Park. And so we're throwing the football with him. And he's telling me he's a former boxer. And I'm saying, well, how good were you? And he's like, good enough to whip your... And I was like, I believe you. <laughs> Done. All right, I'm going to go over here and throw the football. Well, anyway, we're sitting there talking with him, and he's, he's a great guy who's just really down. Um, and so when we leave, I think this is a great opportunity for my kids to see how righteous their dad is. And so we go, we go to Pollo Tropical, and we buy a couple of family meals, and we come back because there's other people in the pavilion, and I think I'm going to have my boys, Jacob and Caleb, and they're going to carry the the dinners to them and i'm thinking you know this is so good they're going to see what it's like to love the down and out and the the ones who are cast off and the ones who quite honestly you know i'm telling them they don't have air conditioners and fridges and couches you know they sleep on stone benches and you know whether or not they've made some bad decisions or they're just out here for anything that could happen to us you know christ loved exactly these types of people this in fact they were more likely to be in His church than we are. You know, we were. He went after the, the broken. And so we walk up and, and we're carrying these things and Jacob and Caleb are up there and I'm so proud and I'm thinking, you know, they're going to follow their dad's righteous example. This is good. Jacob walks right up to him, gives him the food and says, come live with us. You know, and so I went from this to desperately scrambling. How do I keep 
me from having to be really uncomfortable because I could spare some money to give a meal, but now we're talking about real life-changing love. Way to go, Jacob! <laughs> and I wish I could tell you that like, I got this guy an apartment and he's doing way better and everything else. But this guy looked at my boy kind of sad. It, it sat on me for a while. But he looks at my boy with this look like, you just treated me like I was human. And he looks up at me and says, nah, you don't want me living with you. Which made me feel subhuman. Why? You know, I get it that there's safety issues and, you know, bringing some guy who's drinking into your home with young kids and everything. You know, that's not particularly wise. But loving that man and not letting him stay there, at least doing whatever I could in the moment to be a little bit more engaged, like, that's what the people of God do. That's what Jesus does. You know, it's the heart of a four-year-old. You know, when Jesus says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like little children, amen. They haven't had a chance to be jaded like we have. They haven't had a chance to develop superiority complexes like we have. They just want to love. Everybody, of every condition, of every race, of, of every... You know, money doesn't mean anything to them. So It's a really beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. And so Jesus then is going to go on and he says, he defines the other side. And he says, but woe to you who are rich. How many of you in here who did your personal worship or who are seeing that for the first time are going, oof, I just got a new house, a new car. I've got this in my bank account. Compared to the rest of the world, I'm in the top 99 or top 1% in wealth. Probably true of a lot of us. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. That word is not like Jesus is against having a good time. The word actually communicates better as gloat. You laugh like, look at the, you're the laughing stock. <laughs> I'm so much better than you. Woe to those who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. And what Jesus does here is He comes and He levels. He's saying, if you get all that, if you're running after it, if you've gotten it, if you feel wealthy, if you feel secure, if you feel satisfied, if you've got the world's praise, and now it's time for you to sit back in your recliner and you've arrived... If that's what you're chasing after, you are so poor and so empty, you are lost and clueless if you think that in the ultimate scheme of the things, that's enough. Apart from me? <laughs> you're pitiful. You're pitiful. And could you really look at this world and say it's enough? Really? Revelation, I mean, Jesus breaks this down in Revelation 3.17. He says this, For you say I'm rich, and I've prospered, and I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In that, he captures the whole thing. If you're saying, I've got it all, I don't need you, Jesus, you're wretched, pitiable, marginalized, poor, blind, shamed, naked, clueless. If you think you can get through it without him. And here's the deal. That's liberating. If you're ultimately thinking that those things are the prize, man, you're going to get on the hamster wheel and you're going to run 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 and you're going to get in arguments with your wife over this and all these idols are going to warp the way you see what your ultimate purpose is here and you're going to chase and you're going to chase and you're going to get so enslaved to all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, come to me. I'm your treasure. I'm your satisfaction. I can free you from all that. And if you're ultimately satisfied in me, then those things won't warp your soul. If you love your wife through my kind of love, your marriage won't get warped. There's this great devotion that says the only thing that you can grasp without damaging your soul is my hand. It's really true. And why would you want to grab anything else? C.S. Lewis says, you know, we fall into all this sin not because our desires are so strong and out of control and we can't stop sinning. He says we fall into that because our desires are not strong enough. Listen to what he says. It's brilliant. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite. Trace that out in your mind. Infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far, 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 far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. And so here's the deal. If you recognize that you are poor, and that you should hunger. And that if you see the world for the way it is, you will grieve. And if you respond to the world the way Jesus does, you will be marginalized. And they're going to look at you like you're crazy that you're passing up all the world's gods of money and acceptance and fame and everything else to pursue Christ and to love those that are down and out. The world's going to look at you like you're crazy. If you realize who you are, it'll change who you are. Do you understand that? If you realize who you really are, it'll change who you are. Humble yourself. See who you are in the sight of the Lord. And that will make you a far better person to those around you. So Jesus says to that, He says, okay, if you get this, I say to you who hear, those who get it, Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And what he's saying here is it's not just an outer work. Don't just do good, but make it an inner work. Genuinely want that person to prosper. You know, you don't go do good so it's like, you know, I really hate this person. I'm going to do something nice to him just so it bugs him. Want that person to be redeemed. Want that person to see Redemption, reconciliation, friendship. Jesus had this wild imagination that he would go after his worst friends, those who hated him, those who ran away from him, those who said awful things about him, 
And he'd go to the cross to win them. And he calls on us to be to do likewise, to want our enemies to be one as friends. He says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. I always heard this taught that if somebody smacks you on the cheek, well, you turn the other cheek to him like, you got no power over me. Give me the best shot. You can't hurt me. Like It's like that. No. In the first century, when you walked up to greet someone, you didn't do like we do today, like, oh, how you doing? My name is Sam. You walked up and you turned the cheek because custom was in that culture that you would kiss each other on the cheek. And so when you came to somebody with a turned cheek, it was a sign of friendship. And this is saying, if somebody has even smacked you on the cheek, do not give up on the hope of friendship. Offer them the other cheek. Never stop pursuing reconciliation and redemption of a broken world into the image that Christ desires. And he goes on and he says, if somebody takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And the cloak, to understand what he's talking about, the cloak is the outer garment. It's the nice one. It's the expensive one, actually, probably. And it's adorned and it's made to look nice. But then the, the inner, the tunic, is like the thing that sticks, is right on your skin. It's like the long, I don't know, like long johns or something looks like, except it's a robe usually. And what Jesus is saying, if someone takes your outer garment, give them your tunic too. And it's like, well, hold on a minute, Jesus. This is the last line of defense before the undies. And what Jesus is saying here is, yeah. I don't think he's being literal, but he's provoking us like a, yeah, you should be willing to endure shame in the pursuit of someone who's wronged you. It's not saying let someone walk all over you. That would not be doing good, like Jesus says. It's not doing good to someone to let them learn how to be a tyrant or a bully. It's saying, be willing to endure the shame. Gee, who else has endured the shame to win his friends? Jesus. Who else has been struck repeatedly in the cheek and yet refused to stop chasing those he wanted to make his friends? Jesus. Who has been stripped of his cloak and his tunic as well? Jesus. And who never stops chasing after his enemies? Well, Jesus. And if he's done that for us... When our offense to an infinitely holy God is far greater than anything anybody in this world could do to us, who are we to withhold that? And he goes on. And he says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners, and he, he, he uses this expression, he used it in the previous verse, even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Because even sinners do the same. Jesus never talks like this except for this passage. And it's like, it's kind of weird to hear Jesus saying, even sinners, even sinners. And what he wants to create in his people is this puffed up self-righteous, like, yeah, even those sinners, they're the people that make this world a mess. And lend to those who, whom you expect to receive. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And then he goes on and he concludes and he says, this is what I've just told you. Love your enemies, do good, and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward, catch this, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Uh, time out, Jesus. 
Now, we were just talking about those sinners, but now you're talking about the sons of the Most High, and you just use words that were even harder, un- ungrateful and evil. Who are you talking about? The sons, the sons of the Most High? Well, that, that's me. Evil. Ungrateful. And he doesn't skip a beat. It's not like he stops there and says, all right, <clears throat> I know that was hard to hear. Let me explain. He knows they know it. He knows we know it, if we're being honest. That in our heart, we're always seeking to serve ourselves. We will get nasty with our wives. We will get nasty with our kids. We'll get nasty with our bosses and employers. Why? Because it's all about me and us. And I'll cut corners. I'll cheat, steal. Man, if I, if you couldn't see, I mean, like, our instincts are evil. And though God has gone to a cross, the infinite God has suffered and died for us. Does He receive the gratitude He deserves? So He's saying this, even those sinners (laughs) deserve love from someone who's evil and ungrateful, who's been rescued from the pit of hell. Who has sent my son to pay the ultimate penalty, to suffer, to be outcast, to, to pay every penalty, to endure every fence, to be striked on the cheek, to have his robe taken, and all of this. If God would do that for the evil and ungrateful, well, then you should do it for even those sinners. And he goes on, and when it's not about us, it changes the way we do things. You know, in this passage, I'm just gonna I'm gonna run through them. But he goes on and he talks about judging, right? He says, he says, judge not and you'll not be judged. This is like the rallying cry of this generation. Don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. And we've taken that to mean that if I really love a person like Christ loves a person, then I will never speak into their lives when I see that they're going down the wrong path because that would be judging. Jesus then goes on and he says, you know, why are you trying to take a speck out of a brother's eye when you've got a log in your own? But listen to what he says. Take the log out of your own eye. Recognize that your sin is of greater importance to you. It's way bigger. It's in your eye. It's the only thing you see. It's like a log when it's this close. And then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. He's saying, don't care about your brother's eye. You worry about your own eye. Who cares about your brother? Well, we tend to take that and now all of a sudden we don't lovingly enter into people's lives and say, hey man, you're on a bad path and I love you enough too much to let you walk down it. I remember being on a Facebook post, which is where all theological debates go to flourish. <laughs> and, and, and somebody was saying, it's someone who's currently in the congregation who I didn't ask permission, so I'm not going to name them, but if she wants to raise her hand, she can. <clears throat> Anyway, they were having a conversation about judging. And everybody was saying, you know, you don't do that. That's judging, that's judging, that's judging, that's judging, that's mean. You shouldn't do that. And I said, you know, if I announced that this evening I'm going to go out into downtown Fort Lauderdale and I am going to commit adultery on my wife, what would the loving thing to do, what would it be? And I got beat up and everything else. But this, this, this woman said, If you were going into downtown Fort Lauderdale to commit adultery on your wife, I would beat you with a stick. (laughs) And here's the deal. That's the loving thing to do. 
because I know her heart for me. I know her heart for my wife. She doesn't come to me saying, I'm so much better than you. Let me show you all the holy way. She comes to me and says, check out my scars. Look where I've been hurt. Look where I struggle. You think, you think your heart's wicked. Oh, let me tell you my struggles. Jesus, whenever he comes to a person and when he talks about this, he's not saying ignore your brother who's stumbling into sin. He's saying don't get on top of the pit and say, hey, you're in pretty bad shape down there. You're pretty stupid for getting down in this pit. You're like Jesus who always does this. He goes down into the pit with them and lifts them up out. You come to them recognizing that with them you're lowly. With them you're hurting. With them we're all battling in this broken world that's got its tentacles and its claws into our flesh and is always calling out of us this selfishness. And man, I've got to die to that stuff every day and point my eyes to Christ and remind myself that He's enough. And so I know if I need that reminder, man, my brothers need it too. It's not about me. And it changes the way you enter into that conversation. When Jesus gives us the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, He's taking it from Leviticus where He also says this, that you shall surely reprove your neighbor. If you love them, you will confront them. Love your neighbor as yourself. I would want someone to stop me from making stupid, life-destroying decisions, right? but I'd want him to do it gently and with humility. Jesus goes on and He kind of summarizes and He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear its own to bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not plucked from bramble bushes. And so what He's saying here is, got to do something about what kind of tree you are. And we're left going, well, well how do I do that? Where do I get the power to change what kind of tree I am? You know, I've got this bougainvillea bush that is the spawn of Satan <laughs> behind my house. And I went out there the, a couple of weeks ago with shorts and a sh- short sleeve shirt, and, you know, which tells you my level of intelligence. And so by the end of it, I am so scratched up and have stripes that Laura's joking with me like, you could play a body double for the movie The Passion. Like, I look totally meshed up. And what do you know, a week later, all these stalks are right back coming up. And it's like, I hate you. You know, but why did they do that? Why did they do that? Because I didn't dig up the roots. You know, we used to, I used to do an exercise with my 10th graders when I taught at WA, and we called it the tree of sin, and what we would do is we would, you know, make this tree trunk, and we'd build these branches coming off of it that represent the Ten Commandments, and you'd have, you know, I, the Lord your God, you know, there's no one before Him, no idols, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath holy and work six days, you know, honor your mother and father, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. And so then I'd say, okay, I want you to list all the ways that you can violate those commandments. And man, they were creative. And so, and so we had all these sins that people struggle with coming off and ways that you can violate all the Ten Commandments. And, you know, if, if we really did it, that tree would be exploding because there's so many ways you can violate the Ten Commandments. And I said, okay, let's take one of these struggles. Let's say it's 
It's addiction. Because that's something that just, it's just unrelenting. Our, our habit and the way when we hear, you know, don't bear bad fruit is to go, okay, well, let's go find the fruit, the rotten fruit. Okay, there it is. And I'm going to work on it. I'm going to try real hard. I'm going to get my, my clippers. I'm going to bring them out in the shears. And I'm going to, all right, there's addiction. And then you walk away and a few days go by and your strength fails you and poof, there's that fruit again. And then poof, over here. Poof, poof, poof. And your tree's growing wild and more and more rotten. And so you take it out and you wear yourself out, you know, trying to cut off all this rotten fruit. And Christ and the Scriptures come to us with this amazing wisdom that when we take a step back is so unbelievably brilliant. Christ says, if you want to get rid of the rotten fruit, dig up the roots. And what are those roots? It is a fallen, self-centered, self-absorbed heart. Or as the Bible puts it, you need to carry your cross. You need to die daily. You need to crucify your flesh. Why? Because your self-centered, nasty, evil, ungrateful flesh, and you'll wear yourself out if you're trying to do it in your strength. So die to self. You've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you who lives, but Christ living in you. That's what Paul says. Let Christ replant you. Seek after Him. Water yourself in the treasures of His Word. See Him as your delight. See Him as your source of comfort. And guess what? Those roots that start flourishing in Christ bear pretty awesome fruit. But if you're doing it in your own strength, you will remain, I will remain a bad tree with bad fruit. I need to be replanted. As Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of his heart the mouth speaks. And here's this is this is basically the whole thing. He's gone through these, you know, the Beatitudes and everything else saying, what do you treasure? Who do you identify with? What's your opinion of self? Do you see yourself as totally adequate and sufficient? Do you see yourself as a mess in need of a savior? Do you see your Savior and delight in the fact that one day He is going to clothe you in glory? He sings over you now, the Scriptures say. He delights in you. If He is your treasure, if He is your satisfaction, then guess what? Out of the good treasure of a man's heart, if Christ is your treasure, then out of your life Christ will flow. But if you keep loading evil treasure and desires into your heart, what do you expect to come from your life? Jesus tells you. And He also tells you that the end of that road is empty, poor, ridiculed, and alone. He's beautiful. He's amazing. He's infinite in all of His beauties. And He's yours. Do you need 
anything else? Do you really need anything else? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for your goodness, for the way that you love us. For Lord, we can't even begin to understand just how extreme your love is for us. We can't wrap our minds around infinity. But you do. You delight in us. You suffer for us. You give everything away for us. And you come and tell us, and you point out just how broken and needy we are. And then you call us because you have set us up in heavenly places, because you've secured our salvation and our inheritance, that you've satisfied our souls. You call us to go out and find the poor and the broken and the grieving and the marginalized and to love them just even a fraction as much as you've loved us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remain humble in our own eyes, that we would be small, but make much of you. That we would not seek our fulfillment in all the mess of this world, but that we would find our treasure in you. We thank you for your goodness, and I pray a special blessing on each and every one of these families that are here today that you would come by the power of your Spirit and make yourself the centerpiece of every home, that you would restore broken relationships, that you would call and capture the hearts of our little ones, and that you would raise up a new generation of people who want to go out into this world as you did and chase after the lost and the broken and the hurting and the poor. Give us hearts that want that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.